Yes, people, the time of the evening where you join us on your favorite show, Legal Talk, and Alhamdulillah, I'm glad to say that uh, Senior Attorney Ashraf Isup has uh, joined us once again. Let me welcome you with our Senior Attorney with a hearty Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. And tell me, Ash- Ashraf, how are you doing this uh, beautiful uh, Friday evening? Alhamdulillah, alhamdulillah. Very good. And you, Brother Shafat, with the all the better to have you, Ashraf, and uh, you know a very momentous occasion uh, this uh, uh, you had today for Juma, and you went to Soweto. Uh, tell us how was the atmosphere there, and how was your Juma in Soweto, Ashraf? Oh, Shafat, unfortunately, I couldn't make it. Uh, I was invited for a very important Juma uh, at the Dlamini Mosque. You know, it's one of our few Sunni mosques left in uh, the townships. Um, I think maybe people are not aware, but the, there's a certain um, expansion of the Shia influences, especially in the township. Unfortunately, I wasn't feeling too well, so I couldn't make it there. Um, yeah, uh, but I'm, I'm, I'm sure that I'll be getting a call back just now. I'm sure it must have been dynamic and, uh, you know, beautiful as usual. Uh, one of the important things of the Soweto Mosque is when we have a Juma there, we do feed the people after lunch, which is a great uh, sunnah and a very important part because, you know, the Juma is a very special day for us, not in the manner that we necessarily deal with it here, but uh, the world over and historically, uh, it was very, very important. And one of the sunnahs was uh, the feeding of the people after the uh, the Juma Salah. Unfortunately, as I say, I missed out today. Yes, Ashraf, and uh, the point you made was uh, the feeding, you know, people uh, look forward to that. And uh, we have a few venues in Durban where they feed and, uh, you know, people go after the Salah. I mean, they look forward uh, to the meals and they seem, uh, you know, to have, uh, it makes for easy digestion. Uh, but, you know, the important thing is, uh, you know, we find that in our times when we grew up, we as Muslims used to be in different compartments, you know, the Indian in the Indian area, the colored Muslim in their area and so forth, the Malays, all segregated. And, you know, you if you notice how the demographics have changed, that uh, in uh, the Durban uh, scenario is 90% of the mosque is uh, full of uh, West Africans and, uh, you know, uh, people from uh, East Africa and so forth. And also, you know, from the subcontinent. Uh, no more like, you know, when you went to the mosque and every everyone was an indian now it's really cosmopolitan i mean it's more african than indian what's your thoughts on that uh ashra i i think that uh, in the city centers shafat that's become the the order of the day you can take any mosque that uh, is here in Gauteng, um and you see the people from all over the world basically are settling in and uh, attending the mosques not just the juma but on a regular basis, like, you know, we have areas that I would suggest for us is now no go like Nugget Street and other areas of the city. Uh, but the city center is inhabited by people from, as like you say, especially the African continent. And they obviously making a big impact and they are running their, uh, their most in, in the best possible way. And, uh, yeah, uh, they, they're making a big difference. Now, important to note, again, that the Juma, as we know, starts earlier on. The, the one that comes to earliest to the mosque 
is um, his, his name is noted. And I remember re- reading Ibn Battuta uh, saying that when he entered Timbuktu, the sound of people reciting Quran was like honeybees. I don't know if that is still practiced today. I haven't seen it uh, for all of my adult life, um, which is another very important part of what we have done. Shafat, I just got an urgent call. I'm going to call you. This story about it. Yes, sir, people. Ashrafi, they're back with us. They're busy as a bee. And 24-7, it seems like you are on call all the time. It's more like you are a... Yeah, a gynecologist. Uh, but uh, yeah, moving on, uh, Ashraf, as you said, you know, uh, we, we find uh, that the uh, people, uh, the oh. masjids, uh, what I want to focus on there also is, uh, you know, the Somali co- community uh, building their own uh, masjids in, 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 uh, in South Africa. And in Cape Town alone, they have, uh, you know, a big masjid there where they, they have taken control fully. They pay the imam, they pay uh, the madrasa teachers and so forth for everything. And, uh, you know, really committed to Islam, Ashraf? Yeah, look, I think our forefathers also had that in mind, Shabbat. Wherever you see uh, our communities were, they flourished, they, they looked after, they did the, they first established the mosque, the madrasa, and of course the graveyards. Uh, and then, uh, you know, those three things, very, very central to the uh, the, the Muslims. And um, they, they, what we're seeing is not unusual. We're seeing the usual pattern of mankind. I remember, when the Rasul Wasallam entered Medina, the first thing he established was the mosque. Uh, because he said wherever the, uh, the camel stops, he will alight. And um, he did three things. So, so the mosque became central. Then he established the Asabe Sufa. Then he established a place for the uh, feeding of the poor. Then he established the Madrasa. And most importantly, Shafat, the trading space. Because um, you remember the ayat of the Quran uh, on, on the, on the Jummah came because people were continuing to trade and it was the time for Jummah. And I mean, obviously, you could see from the mosque that the people were not coming. And they were still trading in the marketplace. So all of these things are intertwined. Now, what I'm saying is what they're doing, and especially the Bengalis and Pakistanis, they're in faraway townships, like in Luitrichad and other rural areas. Shabbat, they put up mosques, eh? I mean, this is part of the deen. They're putting up the mosque. They're running the mosque. They're attending the mosque. In many small areas here, uh, like Mayatan, here in uh, not too far from us, uh, the Imam is a Pakistani or an Indian or whatever. But what I'm saying, uh, you know, as we moved out of, let's say, established areas, I don't know about uh, Durban, but I'm sure that it's facing the same demographic changes, that as we moved out of, uh, with the demise of apartheid, and then they allowed us to go and live in so-called mixed or white areas or whatever, um, and even there, we've established mosques in, in formerly, formerly white areas. So we're doing what they're doing. We say that the whole world is a mosque, and uh, the more places they establish for prayer, the better for the community.
Good point there, Shraf. And, uh, you know, uh, you make us see another side to the whole thing. And uh, then uh, this uh, concerted effort by uh, many individuals uh, to try and put uh, these uh, brothers out of business by saying, you know, they're selling uh, uh, expired food stuff and uh, many are getting poisoned uh, from eating uh, food from, or, you know, uh, biscuits or uh, chocolates or sweets uh, from these stores. And also, you know, uh, inspectors are going there and checking them out and harassing them. Um, what do you make of all this uh, scenario? Is it a unfair practice or is there some truth in it, uh, Ashraf? So, Shabbat, again, we're judging them by news reports and these uh, vigilante groups going around and uh, and saying, look, uh, here's a few items or the entire shop is whatever. Uh, it's getting more serious than that now. Uh, here, the local government is talking about only South Africans being operating, uh, being licensed to operate uh, spaza shops. Now, uh, will that cure uh, the issue of counterfeit goods or counterfeit foods or, or expired foods uh, is yet to be seen. Uh, will those places now be uh, uh, turned into, uh, you know, shops that, that have license to sell, let's say, alcohol or uh, tobacco, uh, both of which are harmful to your health? Tobacco... It's extremely harmful. But people don't take the same attitude to alcohol and tobacco as they would take to to foodstuff, which is, is right. You cannot be selling poisoned or expired foods, no, or counterfeit goods, you know. You can't be. I know there was a case here where there was a Chinese company selling Valpre water. And uh, it's just that the label and the bottle. But the rest of the goods just simply came from a firehouse. So in, in this environment, yes, you cannot, I mean, you cannot uh, accept anyone. Imagine your child had to eat something like that and become sick as a result. Or even if you go to a normal restaurant and the food is not fresh and you get food poisoning, it's an outrage. So why should these people in the townships be treated any uh, less fairly? If the goods are expired, they expire. They cannot be made available for human consumption. Now, the question is, are they only targeting Muslims or uh, uh, spaza shops? No. You know, there's, I, I saw uh, one of the big franchises have a, have a low-end uh, store, and they found evidence of expired food there. Mm. Yeah. Uh, so the question is, you know, vigilantism, because none of these are, and I think the Department of Health was saying, look, we are the people that police this. You can't be taking your the, the law into your own hands. You, know, you can't be resorting to self-help. I understand the community's perspective. They're saying, well, you know what? Our kids are getting sick and we won't allow this. On the flip side, Shafat, what they found um is once these spaza owners, uh, spaza shop owners are forced out, unfortunately, they then have to resort to the big brands and their supermarkets don't open 24-7, number one. They are much more expensive. And then a few kilometers away, so you'd have to take a taxi to go and buy a loaf of bread, whereas previously the, the, the spaza shop was a few doors away. Now, 
let's say that the spaza shops are closed down and it is the purview only for South African citizens. Well, let's hope that the, the, um, the, the space is filled, you know, by people that, that say they can run spazas and uh, they can compete uh, with with uh, this kind of competition from... Uh, let, let's just isolate our discussion, say, to Somali pearls. You know, Shabbat, they have a very highly organized buying system. They uh, pool their money into stock as well as goods. And then they enter into partnerships with each other. Of course, there's a very strong traditional base there as well. But this is how they manage to keep the prices low. On the other end of the spectrum, you hear of, uh, you know, a small cabal running just the baking of bread and deliveries. So bread can be sold in those shops between six and eight rand, which is a staple product. And whereas in the big franchises, uh, you're paying 12 rand now for an ordinary in-house bakery. And I don't know, 18 or 20 rand for a loaf of ordinary bread mm. from some of other bigger suppliers. So you can see this, there's a, there's two sides to this thing, Shabbat. I'm saying the community must make the best decision uh, for themselves. What I think they should consider and, and, the, and the present spaza shop owner should consider is a uh, partnership. There's two reasons for that. Number one, the traders that have come from Africa and Somalia and other places, they know trade. They're buying power. They know what to do. The locals don't have an exposure to how to run commercial enterprises, even a small spaza shop. And they could equally benefit uh, if they put in the capital or they put in some kind of effort. They could e equally benefit from the resources that are introduced by these traders. Uh, and, and so you can see that, you know, it could have a positive impact, I believe, on the society and on the community as a whole, where you don't throw the baby out of the bathwater. Gee, Ashraf, uh, you know, I hope you're still there, Ashraf. Yeah. You can yes, me. I am. I, I hope you can hear me loud and clear. Yeah, mashallah, you're sounding uh, brilliant on this end. Now, you know, making this, uh, you know, assumption or the scenario, as you said, we only go by press uh, reports. And uh, these brothers, even from Pakistan and uh, Bangladesh, they're very astute businessmen and they do very well. Indeed, uh, you know, if, uh, whatever they do. And uh, perhaps uh, looking at them being in their rural areas and into the townships and so forth, uh, they seem to have even learned the language and intermarried and uh, whatever they could do, even build up madrasas and so forth. And perhaps, uh, you know, bringing in their brother-in-laws and uh, family members from the wife's side into the business. Will that uh, that help, um, Ashraf? Look, Ashraf, as soon as any man in any country um, gets his rights, you know, uh, and, and the law allows him to uh, to bring in members of the family, he does so. Um, you could be in America, in the backwaters of some place, and you'll find a small little Pakistani shop and a uh, guy selling halal meat. And obviously, he's, he's brought members of his family. I think it's a natural progression of people in that way. Remember the other quiet community that we often overlook is the Turkish community, especially, um, you know, the uh, UICT brothers. They are all over Shafat. 
they are they're having madrasas in Attridgeville. They have uh, they're not traders. They only concentrate on that. But their money comes from Turkey, and their uh, ulama, their teachers, also come from Turkey. So uh, not necessarily from one family, but they're certainly from one people. And so they're busy with their efforts. Um, as regards the Bengali and Pakistanis, yeah, they're in our midst. Now, I don't know if you know, but the Bengalis usually end up owning these 24-hour shops. Yes. And uh, most of the restaurants, they're not Pakistani. We always say we're going to eat Indian, Pakistani. It's actually Bengali. Um, and then you'll have the Indians that are usually in the haircutting business. I don't know if, if you picked up that uh, mm. trend, you know. Um, and then uh, you get a few Pakistanis there as well. And then um, you get, you know, you, you if you look at the Oriental Plaza, for example, a lot of those shops have now become uh, not clothing retail, but like they all seem to be selling the same fabrics and stuff like that. So the other other thing is a lot of them have um, gone into uh, building, and that's the trend here in Mayfair and Fordsburg, where they just knock down a building on a 500-square-meter plot, and they put up a three- or four-story building there. So very astute, you know, very um, uh, moving with the times. And Shafat, make no mistake, those, those buildings are, 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 are inhabited. Eh? Mm. Uh, so where we have left and left a vacant uh, vacancy, they have uh, filled that spot. I don't know if you've come to Fordsburg recently, but it's uh, no longer where you can find an indigenous business. Even the fruit and veg guy has sold out, you know, who's been there for years. And then these little shops have popped up all over. Uh, but there are benefits that we've enjoyed from them, Shafat. They brought down the price of biryani. Yeah. For sure. Yeah. They brought down the price of haircuts. For sure. Mm. Uh, in the days when CDs were popular, they brought down the price of CDs. For sure. They've also introduced life into the uh, centers where the cities were dying. I'm now talking very specifically about the Fordsburg, Mayfair, and that kind of surrounds, right? And... Um, here in, 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 in Mayfair, we have a, we have a street. Uh, we actually call it Mogadishu. One street, 8th Avenue, it's full of Somali traders. Somali traders, Somali business, Somali mosques. Um, it's a whole community operating there. So they come, they fill the spot, they trade, they carry on. Not any different to what happened to us a hundred year, hundred year, hundred plus years ago. In 1860, the Indians landed uh, in uh, Durban, and by 1960, you can imagine that there was already quite a few generations. And now, in 2023, uh, three or four generations down the line, you can see that the society is completely evolved. From workers went to professionals. From professionals, the new um, the new breed, I would say, of Muslim in the city centres uh, is completely different from what it was um, 20, 30 years ago. 
And that's the pattern in our mosques as well, Shafa. Hmm. You know, uh, Ashraf, uh, what you're describing, uh, the scenario that you describe, I see uh, here in Durban, it's uh, prevalent. We have a Somali section, we have a Bangladeshi uh, a section, we also have a Pakistani, uh, the, uh, you know, the, the, the Ethiopians are also yeah, uh, quite, uh, you know, prevalent, you can see them. And the entire Durban, I mean, when I was a young lad walking, I knew every shopkeeper because, like, you know, they became your friends and you knew them. This was the Hansas or this was the Mullahs. And uh, you talk to the parks, all gone. It's they not there. Uh, Durban is actually another country, or uh, you know, a cosmopolitan uh, land now. And South Africa, maybe, maybe uh, many say South Africa will end off like Brazil, you know, the population and so forth. What's your thoughts on that, uh, Ashraf? Uh, Shavad, I haven't really given it much thought, but I'm I'm only I'm only talking from the experience here in Johannesburg. I have no doubt that there are certain areas kind of untouched. I'm talking more specifically like Cape Town city centre. There's still very very much old businesses there. Uh, there are one or two in between. So I, I guess the the city will also dictate how the changes occur. Uh, what is, without doubt, Shafat, is that uh, the foreigners of every kind, including the Chinese, we mustn't forget the Chinese traders. I mean, look at the China marts that they've put up in China malls. That has devastated the retail and wholesale economies mm. as we knew them. So they're also a factor to be reckoned with. I guess change is inevitable, Shafat, in whichever way it goes, you know. The population will... Uh, will um, will go the way it goes. You can't really have or you can't really police this no matter how you try because the movement of people is uh, as old as uh, history itself. Um, so the question is, you know, how do you maximize your benefit from it? Because look, there is infrastructure that needs to be maintained. There is ordinary issues like um, like dirt, you know, if there's dirt in the streets and there's dumping and there's illegal stuff, it affects the people. Here we have another phenomenon. We have illegal mining. And when the miners get on top of the the mines, they start shooting each other like in River Lee. Mm. So you can see now even the, the government is mobilizing the army to get rid of illegal mining. Illegal mining has a huge impact on the economy and the lives and the quality of the environment for the people. And um, so, yeah, multiple, what I'm saying, you know, it's not a one size fits all because now we've covered illegal mining that happens by a specific group of people where the Pakistani and Bengali and Somali trader is not there. You know, the activity is, is also huge. It's also illegal. So ultimately the communities that are impacted will know best what, you know, what is good for them and what is not. But inevitably, I think um, the elite are always kind of protected from the fallout of the common people. I can cite uh, Cape Town as an example. Everybody falls in love with Cape Town as, an, as a tourist, yet it's the murder capital of the world because the Cape Flats is full of crime as well as drugs, gangsterism and murder. So, you know, you're only seeing one side of the mountain, Shabbat. And... Um, the other reality is still there. But this is how we find ourselves, and this is, you know, 
I guess we're still better off than uh, so many other places in the world, uh, especially in Gaza right now, which is, you know, it's not even, it's not even a place that you can call home the way it's been uh, decimated. No, absolutely, Ashraf. And, you know, these, uh, as you make the point, uh, the Somalis, uh, the Bangladeshis, the Pakistanis, they work very hard. And, uh, you know, then they are exploited by uh, people uh, pretending to be uh, cops or policemen and extorting money from them. Uh, you know, sometimes even uh, the kidnapping of their children. Uh, it is said, uh, by, you know, these individuals are set up by their own kind to harass their own kind. And uh, maybe there's jealousy there or there's an easy way of making uh, a quick buck out of the, you know, of these people because uh, watching them making quite a, a substantial amount of money. How do we stop that, uh, Ashraf? Because it's not uh, others doing it, but from, from within their own circles, they have people, uh, you know, exploiting them. Ashraf? Yeah, uh, you know, you, you touched on exploitation as the first um, uh, the first thing. Shavad, the, the fact is, um, everybody's got a cell phone these days on, on the, um, and with the cell phone is a camera. And with the camera has come real-time recording and sending it to the cloud. So I guess if you really want to take a stand and you have nothing to be guilty of, well, you can actually take on the exploiter or the police person who's corrupt. With regard to kidnapping, you're absolutely correct. It's a phenomenon that exists in their communities because they know who's got money and they also know who's got money outside the country and back in their country of origins as well. So I guess the, the grounds for revenge is a lot more wider than ours. And, um, you know, you could, you could see that basically that they all are victims of each other's whatever system, you see. So that's how it carries on. And many, you know, they talk to me and they say that the Chinese in this country literally get away with the mass exploitation that is uh, they underpay the staff and uh, the government doesn't check them up. He says, when last have you heard of a political party picking up on the Chinese? What's your take on that, Ashraf? I think the Chinese appear to be a protected class uh, for some or other reason. Maybe it's part of uh, the BRICS arrangement. I don't know. Uh, but they don't seem to be affected by a lot of, even the labor laws, for example, Shafat. Uh, you're not supposed to be employing foreigners uh, without a permit. But you can, most, you can go to most China malls and most Chinese shops and you find uh, other immigrants there being employed. Now, uh, it could be that they employed below the standards or the basic minimum wage. It could be that they are exploited. We don't know. Somehow, they seem to be coexisting. Maybe it's the fact that the Chinese trader, uh, who's doing a lot more better than most shops, is able to pay a, a, a living wage. Maybe, maybe not. Uh, we don't know. But obviously, as you point out, there is this other class of traders and they seem to be immune from so many of the of the um, challenges. But again, here, localizing my discussion in Johannesburg, a lot of them do get attacked. A lot of them do get kidnapped. A lot of them do get exploited and followed. 
and as you know, you know they deal with cash. Yeah. So, but imagine that uh, they're also victims of, um, you know, the rank and file criminal element here, uh, without exclusion. Now, Ashraf, you know, there's so many of them do get robbed, uh, but in most instance, instances, they don't even report uh, the robbery. Uh, why is that so? Obviously, it's cash, you know. I mean, they might not be falling in the tax, yeah. within the, the tax, uh, tax man's, uh, tax man's uh, revenue collection. Uh, they don't pay VAT. And as you know, Shabbat, I mean, clothing carries a duty. But we know that clothing is smuggled in here by the containers. Um, just, just a quick example. You know the uh, World Cup two weeks ago, and these T-shirts, mm. I mean, these T-shirts, the street value was 500. It was in the region of about 380 per item. Can you imagine the kind of revenues that, that was made uh, if, if, you, if you brought in one 20-foot container of T-shirts without VAT, without duty, without uh, ad valorem, without any of, and then obviously the franchise fee, because this was, was given out to only one or two uh, companies like Checkers, you know, that had the monopoly. Now, this, this, the real value of that in the store was 2500 as opposed to 500 on the street. So there's a net loss of 2000 on every item. Multiply that, so let's, let's be generous. Let's say that only 1 million South Africans bought this, <clears throat> this T-shirt. Can you imagine the phenomenal loss there was to the revenue and uh, everyone else along the, the chain? It's just mind-boggling. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, we know uh, how sharp they are. And they're thinking ahead. They know what to do and, uh, uh, you know, the products that they sell. And in most cases, uh, they are sold out. But uh, moving on, on to an international uh, level, I mean, we're talking about people owning uh, the Chinese doing this and that. Uh, but in Canada, you know, the Canada is a wholly owned uh, subsidiary of none other than who, Ashraf? You sent me this article of Benjamin Netanyahu and company. What is this all about, uh, Ashraf? Oh, now you've caught me off guard because I forgot that I sent you this. But there was a there was an article that appeared that suggested that the way that the Canadian government operates um, and and how its decision making is taken, um, you know, uh, so many of of the I would say, um, you know, uh, the um, the decision-making in government, etc., right? It is astonishing that they could they could be seen as not to be in control of their own affairs. So I, I don't think that's any different on one level to what is happening all over the world. Mm. Uh, if you think that uh, Canada is a subsidiary, then let's look at the... Um, um, decisions of the UK Parliament. Um, you know, Suella Braverman, the uh, Home Secretary, um, came on, on, on TV and started making disparaging remarks about uh, the Palestinian marches and, and Armistice Day and, uh, you know, talking ab about Islamists and mobs and violence. 
Of course, we don't need to discuss the U.S. too much. We know their full commitment to uh, the state of Israel in all ways possible, not just financial, uh, in military ways as well. I don't know if you came across this article earlier today that the U.S. Army is massing in Lebanon mm. to try and influence the um, the battle through Lebanon. Um, and, and as you can see, that that's going to have quite an impact on what happens there. Apart from them arming and uh, giving moral and financial support uh, to the state of Israel, uh, and obviously blocking uh, the state security, uh, United Nations Security Council resolutions uh, of any form of condemnation. Uh, it was quite interesting to see that uh, the U.S. went off to Qatar. Uh, to try and negotiate a the release of the hostages, b for a uh, like almost guns down for four hours. I mean, it is just obscene that uh, we could be sitting and looking at these things unfold. And and I guess your father, the frustration is really that um, well, there's nothing you can do. You know, we in charge, we um, decide how things will be. And um, that's it. And uh, do or die. You know, you, 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 I think as Bush said, you know, you with us or against us. I think that's basically kind of the whole, how it, how it seems to be working now, Shafa. Yeah, there was so much of hope in uh, BRICS, uh, China doing this and Russia doing that. And, uh, you know, the BRICS the nation will give them a go and the American dollar will go into oblivion. Uh, it seems that uh, nothing's happening like that. But uh, the point uh, that you talk, uh, spoke about, you know, uh, being subsidiaries or uh, Canada being a subsidiary of Netanyahu and company. But if you look at the Emiratis, I mean, you look at the Arab lands. Uh, it is, the you know, from uh, Dubai and uh, Qatar and uh, Doha and all these places, uh, if you look at them, uh, they all uh, run by the conglomerate. I mean, the Zionist conglomerates. Look at the uh, the Jews are all running uh, to the Emiratis, and they're getting uh, citizenship there. They can marry there. They can live there. They can buy properties and so forth. And uh, very soon they'll say uh, they're saying that this the whole peninsula will be Jewish run or Jew run. What's your thoughts on that, uh, Ashraf? So what's the difference when you control the economy of the entire world? What's the difference that you're physically there? Mm. Now, to, to be fair, not all the uh, Jews would be uh, categorized as Zionists. I mean, there are Jewish rabbis now that are honest enough to say that the Jews are only safe and have had safe passage and have thrived as a nation specifically under Muslim rule. And this rabbi was very, very clear and upfront. And he said, look, let's be honest now. The, the Muslims were protected, uh, were, had protected the Jews. We already know that Sayyidina, uh, Sayyidina Umar was responsible for reintroducing the Jews back into Aqsa uh, when he, when he, took it from the Romans, and Sophonius, who was the, let's say, the chief priest, uh, came out and he, you know, the siege was going to be lifted, and he started negotiating with Sedna Omar. And Sedna Omar, when he got to the top of 
uh, Aksa. He, he didn't know it was Aksa. He was looking for a place to pray, uh, both of them side by side. And uh, when he had finished, I mean, you know, it was it was turned into a dump for 500 years. Can you imagine a municipal dump on Aksa for 500 years by the Roman? So here's what I said, now Umar comes and he cleans it up. And then he asks uh, Sophonius, like, where's the other part, the third part of our, of the believers? And uh, he said, no, well, you know, the Jews, the, the Romans threw them out and said, no, I'm going to send for 80 rabbis and their families to return. So the point is, two, number one, what difference does it make whether they are aided and abetted by the so-called Arabs? We've had this discussion before. The Arabs appear to be hopelessly beaten and um, lost all hope. Forget just in fighting Zionism. They have lost all hope in upholding the deen. Um, so that's our first uh, port of call. The second is the fact that if you control the money of the world or the resources of the world, why do you need to physically go and be in a particular place? We know now that um, the, the whole the whole problem in the Middle East is that um, the Zionists view that this is a land for the Jews and uh, they will, um, uh, you know, they will take it from the Nile to the Euphrates. I, I think Netanyahu has, has made it clear that uh, Gaza will never be reoccupied by the Palestinians. That, that much is, is clear. He's got free hand to do what he wants to do. And at the end of the day, well, you know, we have no, we have let ourselves down, Shafa. We have not been able to put back the deen in all its formations in the societies. And therefore, we see ourselves as minorities. We see ourselves as victims in um, first, so-called first world uh, countries, we see, and and they ask you. So you know, why don't you go back to Afghanistan, or why are you here? You know, and we see ourselves as fitting into a a, a broader society, which is okay. You you know, but have you had an influence and in, in, on that community? And I think we we need to to really take a, a proper look at this and be honest with ourselves that we have not been able to do uh, or, or implement the deen in all its uh, facets anywhere in the world, anyway. You know, Ashraf, there's a point you made there. You know, they'll tell you, oh, why don't you go back to Afghanistan or you've, uh, you're a Pakistani, go back to where you came from. But, uh, you know, you talk to those Afghanis that are living in uh, that area. They were living in a very peaceful manner. They were, you know having whatever they wanted, the food was there, and uh, they had their own uh, culture and tradition with their Islam. But, but, it is the interference of uh, these uh, Westerners and these uh, countries, the colonizers, that they wanted their raw materials. They came and interfered all over, even Africa. People were living in harmony, were living in peace. 
but who made them go to pieces? And they still have the gall to tell you, oh, you know, you came and interfered. Like when Anala Di Pando, when she is uh, fighting, uh, you know, against oppression and bringing out facts and telling the, the, the parliament and telling the South Africans, this is a real issue. And uh, she's, uh, I mean, some of these uh, sick individuals pick on a, uh, you know, a powerful warrior like her. Your thoughts, Ashraf? Well, look, Naledi Pando, uh, being the minister or you know, in for, for Durko, and obviously uh, herself uh, feeling closer to the Palestinian cause by reason of her faith, has been one of those people who's been able to say what she feels without fear or favor. And I think it is a rare commodity. Uh, I, I, I think, except the Irish. Um, the Irish parliamentarians, I haven't seen this kind of robust debate anywhere else in the world. Maybe there is, but we're not seeing it. Now, remember, we also get the news in drips and drabs. You know, they'll tell you what you can hear and what you can see and what you can take. For example, this morning there was a discussion, you know. Al Jazeera speaks of the war in Gaza and CNN speaks of the crisis in Israel. You know, mm. so... It's, it's how you influence the, uh, the waves because you, you're basically in charge of the, the, the news media. I mean, Russian TV is now no longer available in South Africa, so we don't get another view. Uh, whereas in uh, certain BRICS countries, Russian TV is still available, so it's an alternative point of view. With regard to... So she's a good example of a person who's able to speak her mind without fear or favor. And I think sometimes you get that kind of robust debate in the British Parliament. Where, uh, but even now, Ken Starmer from the uh, Labour Party, which was traditionally left of government, seems to be leaning to the right uh, when it comes to this particular issue. So the Labour Party itself is now basically facing a crisis. And remember, Jeremy Corbyn was removed yeah. because of his uh, stance. Um, I think importantly what you've raised is colonialism uh, traditionally and what it, and its impact on societies all over the world. Um, we saw the effect of the British Raj in India and they ruled for 300 years. They destroyed um, the uh, you know traditions of India completely, but they left in its say in its wake now a fascist right wing government. Which can you imagine the Indians are now saying we stand by uh, Israel? I mean, and and so that's uh, what uh, fifty years could make a, a difference. Neocolonialism, I think we in for each other, one way or another. Either the Chinese and the Russians and the Indians are going to recolonize the African continent. And I don't think we need to be naive about this. No colonizer leaves anything for the colonized. But I think more importantly, which is the tragedy that most of the world doesn't seem to realize, is how we are all entrapped in modern slavery. And how we seem to be really enjoying our servitude, you know. The Romans had two things that kept people happy, Shafat. You kept the population subdued. And, and a subdued population is not one that is going to um, rise up and consider itself free. 
and speak of what is really freedom. And uh, that is Panem and Serpent. I don't know if you know what that stands for, but Panem is, is uh, uh, bread and Circum is circus. So Panem and Circum was the means of exploiting um, the situation and keeping the population happy. Um, I would I would put fast foods and the enjoyment of fast food seem to be all hooked on uh, under the uh, uh, label of Panem. Because I don't know if you notice, even in our community, Shabbat, all that seems to matter is which restaurant they opened and where they went and where they ate and how nice the prawns were. I mean, I can't imagine that something can be that interesting. That we, we plan our visits to the restaurants that are opening and, and who's serving the nice chicken and stuff like that. And then Circum, well, we had the rugby, rugby World Cup two weeks ago. But people are either entertained by television or worse still now. Have you noticed how many people's heads are buried in their phones, Shabbat? They're anyway, yeah. go anywhere. Mm. You can go to a religious organization or you can go to a mayor. And, and people are busy with their cell phones. I mean, I witnessed this myself last night. We were in a zikr gathering. And in the middle of a very important um, piece of advice on, 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 uh, by the speaker about of what our contract is with Allah, I, and you know, Allah says I have man to worship me, and that, that is Allah's uh, demand of us, and uh, he then says, I will take care of everything else that you need, you know, this, or the lack thereof. In the middle of this whole thing, you know, I saw a man looking at his phone. I was quite shocked by it. Uh, that A, it's disrespectful to the speaker, and B, you, you actually disassociated yourself from the receipt of knowledge, because that's what you made. You made for you made to receive knowledge and act on it. So, you know, circum, as we said, was entertainment or circus, and now it's in our pocket, Shabbat. It's in the middle of the night in your hands when you wake up to look at the time. And then you use, oh, let me just see what's the news and scrolling. And now it's minute by minute. It's almost the second it happens, it's on your phone. That is how I think we've been, uh, in a way, uh, enslaved to, to all of these things. That's, that's just my personal observation. I could be wrong. Gee, Ashraf, and Jazakallah uh, for sharing that. And, uh... Uh, you know, we also look at the uh, court. Uh, you know, it uh, the court dismisses uh, the ZDP ab application, uh, says uh, that the holders already have it by operation of law. Uh, it's uh, hitting the headlines again. What's the latest on it, uh, on the uh, Zimbabwean exemption permits, uh, Ashraf? So, recall there's been a series of uh, court cases. The last such case was where the leave to appeal, the judgment of the High Court, the full three bench, was refused to the Minister of Home Affairs. And in the interim, uh, Helen Sussman Foundation and COMSA, uh, that is the 
uh, association for migrants. Um, so they decided that, look, we, it's not clear to us that the minister is not going to uh, follow the court order in regard to the suspension of the scrapping of the ZDP. So they went to court saying on an urgent basis, listen, we want clarification. And uh, the court said, no, you can't. You can't come to court and get something that's already there. So that action was dismissed. But interestingly, because of the vacillating by the minister in how these things have been dealt with, um, and, 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 you know, clearly the fact that there was no papers filed by him personally, uh, there was this issue of, of the costs. And then the court said, no, look, you know, we think that we're going to be settling you with, with the costs here because of the reckless manner in which um, you dealt with this. So Ellen Susman Foundation and the Consortium for Refugees and Migrants Application uh, was dismissed because you also had an interesting thing by the All Truck Drivers Forum and uh, they, they were the intervening respondents right in this matter. And they said from the get-go, the minister didn't even have the power to give this ZDP in the first place. So their argument is, how can you uh, cancel something you didn't have? Unfortunately, their matter was not uh, adjudicated on that point, but on the point that they brought the review application late. Because in terms of PAJA, which is the Promotion of Administrative Justice Act, you basically have 180 days from the date that the decision that's affecting you is known uh, to bring an application for review. And there the judges said, well, look, you know what? We're dismissing your application because you brought it outside the 180-day period. But the gist of um, the judgment, you know, was, was very important because the judges once again made clear and said, look, we're telling you now, this is what's happening with the ZDPs. They are deemed to remain valid, not void, valid. They continue to enjoy the protection given by the Immigrations Act. So especially, um, you know, that you may be not arrested or given an order to depart or detained if you don't have that in terms of Section 34. So that's the Immigrations Act saying in terms of Section 34. It says uh, they also exempted from being dealt with in terms of Section 29, 30, and 32 of the Immigrations Act. So that is where you are detained or you are questioned about your status. Um, and, you know, you in, in the ordinary course, anyone else that is subject to the Immigration Act will face arrest, detention, deportation. Um, this is important. Eh? If they had a ZDP, they're still allowed to enter or deport, uh, depart the Republic um, freely. Uh, so, again, a very, very great amount of latitude given to this. And 
they don't have to produce a valid exemption certificate. So if you're actually employing a ZDP and, uh, you know, Home Affairs raids you, uh, you can just say, I have a ZDP and, you, and the court order says, well, look, you don't have to, uh, you don't have to produce it. Nor, uh, nor get a good cause or authorization letter to remain in the Republic. Uh, then the, you know, the whip came down and uh, it said, well, look, um, the minister has to pay 50% uh, in his personal capacity, including the cost of three council, which, uh, and then I, they also disallowed, uh, no, not in this case. In another case, the court disallowed the minister's own attorney, uh, council's cost. In the other case, I'm talking about of 223,000 rand. Um, that's the one where the minister was ordered to pay 10% cost, personal costs, where he had failed to rectify the Immigration Act after he was given a period of two years in which to do so. This kind of speaks about the arrest and detention of foreigners that cannot be held for more than 48 hours without a confirmation by a court of law. So basically they didn't have the 48 hours, you know, they could be held for 30 days and then they had to request. It wasn't an automatic uh, production of their person in court. But that's, as I say, is a different case. So, you know, here you have a failed application but because the minister opposed it, the justice said, no, no, listen, we're not going to accept this now. You're going to be settled with the costs here. And, um, yeah, so you could see that, uh, I mean, for the applicants, there were three, uh, there was a senior counsel and uh, three other uh, counsel. And then for the, for the respondents, which is, uh, the department, you know, there was two senior counsels. Quite a whopping uh, judgment, Shafat. I mm -hmm. mean, in a way, it kind of speaks about the courts now not putting up with reckless and, uh, you know, just willy-nilly litigation. I mean, they, the, the department didn't have to go and respond to this ex parte application. It is an ex parte application. That means without notice to the other side. Mm. And they, if they step back, the judges would have done the job, but um, uh, the judges were not happy with uh, with what had happened here. I hope I hope that just giving you a glimpse, Shavat, of the depth of this very very important judgment. But as you can see, that incredibly important how um, the the courts have dealt with this. Now let's be clear: it is not forever. It is not timeless. It's only until June 2024. This allows the minister in the interim, in the other matter, to still consult and still make a decision. So the courts didn't say the minister may not make the decision. The courts have said the minister had not acted procedurally correct and substantively correct when he made the decision. Not that he can't and he doesn't have the power to do so, but that he hadn't consulted with the relevant stakeholders before he made his decision. And then he said, I consulted after, and they said, no, that's too late. You can't make a decision, then say I've consulted, because that's not how it works. So I hope that gives you a little bit of an inkling Gee. to a very important judgment that uh, affects lots of people. 
Absolutely, Ashraf. As you said, uh, affects a lot of people, and uh, you know we have a lot of uh, Zimbabweans uh, that are very you know good uh, people and that uh, you know eloquent and understand the instructions properly, but uh, deliver at an optimum. Ashraf, uh, you have a minute and a half to go. Perhaps your parting words uh, this evening. Shavad, always one that we must uh, remember hope uh, and you know uh, always remember Allah. I mean, I just maybe can share the little bit of a dars that, that was given yesterday. So uh, the chef from Morocco said something. He said, look, here's the, here's the transaction. Allah says, I've created man and jinn to worship me. The best form of worship is um, uh, the asma'ul husna, is to make the zikr of Allah. The best way to do that is 666 times in the night after tahajjud then 66 times after Fajr. That brings a guaranteed response from Allah that Allah says, you do that and I will take care of you, your risk and everything else. So you can see it's a very easy contract to fulfill, Shafat. It's not mm. difficult. You know, some people believe that you must be 24 hours in zikr. It's difficult if you're working and, you know, you're trying to, I mean, you have one mind, you can't fully do two thoughts. You can't be doing a complex operation and you know at the same time uh but here's here's the leeway here's the great benefit from this and um, the second part of that is uh is the asakfar uh, you know the, the allah says that you know you ask for the forgiveness and i am the forgiver i'll give it to you just just make the toba so again a very very important lesson that we've learned last night which we hope that our listeners will take and uh, practice on and of course, always, you know, reading the Yasin for ourselves, for the deceased, for the help of Allah, never forgetting that. And always know that Allah is in charge of all matters. We are not in charge. We are only part of the role playing. Importantly, the Sheikh also pointed out that even your ability to make zikr and ask for forgiveness is a blessing from Allah, from millions and millions of people in the world. Jazakallah khair, Ashraf. Have a blessed evening ahead. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Wa alaikum assalam wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Time for us to go for the Isha Azan and inshallah we will continue after that.